Well, um, I've been thinking um, this past couple of weeks, actually, just about uh, this past year. It's been a real challenge for a lot of people we've had with this COVID thing. We've had a lot of sickness across the country and uh, many deaths and um, had, um, with the lockdowns, a lot of these smaller businesses um, just going out of business and um, just a lot of people losing jobs. And so there's just been a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of fear, a lot of sorrow. And um, I just thought uh, as we end this year and going into another year, it would be good to just um, uh, take some thoughts actually lessons that we can gather from the life of Elijah. And I think it's applicable for, for us. And um, so I'm going to be sharing, it's a little unusual, I'm going to be sharing from three chapters in the Old Testament in 1 Kings and um, three lessons that we can get from Elijah um, in his life. And uh, the first one is in chapter 17, and this is the lesson from the brook Cherith. And the lesson is God's provision for us. And uh, this is First Kings 17, and I'd like to j just give you a little bit of a background. This is, is what I read. This is the first place that Elijah shows up in the Bible. And at the time, Ahab was king. And um, he uh, <clears throat> was a Baal worshiper, and he was that was the the people were under that kind of rule. So Elijah comes to him in verse one. <clears throat> now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, "As the Lord." The God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that when you will drink of the brook, you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So we see here in um, uh, verse 4 that the Lord commanded ravens to provide for him. He gets water from the brook, and um, it's a source of provision, but it's from the most unusual uh, of 
of things to provide be provided by. Um, ravens were considered unclean in the Old Testament, Levit- Leviticus 11. And um, it's interesting that he didn't feed on the unclean birds, but rather the unclean birds fed him. And uh, we also know that birds, ravens, it said that when I looked it up, they eat on insects and decaying flesh. And uh, here they're bringing him bread and meat every day, twice a day, bringing him bread and meat. And the other thing we know about birds, you know, if you've heard the saying, Man, she doesn't eat much. She eats like a bird. <laughs> it's not a lot of food, in other words. He, they were bringing him food to sustain him, but he's not complaining about it. He's just eating it. He's satisfied. He's content with what God's provided. The other thing we see here is that the location. It says in verse 4, let me read it again. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there, not somewhere else, but there. That's where God told them to go, and that's where God provided for them. And um, Vance Havner said, it was the place of God's provision because it was the place of God's purpose for Elijah. And then he says, where God guides, he provides. So just that, that's where God's going to provide. And Elijah obeyed him and went there and trusted God, and he provided for him. <clears throat> the other thing we see is Elijah is alone. He's alone there. He's having to rely completely on God and what God said, how God was going to provide for him. There wasn't anybody else to lean on wasn't any other thing to lean on. It was God alone. <clears throat> and then we notice in verse 7 that the brook dried up. Well, there's been a pretty severe famine, or a drought, I mean, pretty severe drought, and I'm sure a famine too. And um, uh, so eventually that brook is going to dry up, and... That didn't take God by surprise. He tells Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath. Now, this is the rest of the chapter. It's Elijah's uh, where he's at Zarephath, and he's being provided for by a widow. The Lord commanded the widow to provide for him, and she did. And there could be a lot said about this widow. I mean, that could be a whole message. She had very little food. She was going out to prepare the last of her food for her and her son, and they were going to die. And Elijah comes and says, serve me first. And um, so as she just lays, gives what she has in service to the prophet, the Lord makes sure she doesn't run out of food. The Lord provides for her so that she can provide for Sarah, uh, for uh, a Elijah there at Zarephath. Now we don't know how long she was. He was in the wilderness, 
by the brook, and we don't know how long he was in Zarephath, but we do know combined from James chapter 5 that he was there about three and a half years because that's what the drought was. And then he's commanded um, to go tell Ahab. But just a couple of things we can learn from this. That God is sovereign over all of his creatures. He can use them any way he pleases. Here, he used in mercy, he used the um, ravens to provide for Elijah. In another place in the Old Testament, he uses locusts as judgment on the children of Israel. And it was judgment. So he can use his creatures any way he chooses. Remember, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. And when they brought him out, before his accusers could actually be hit the ground, the lions were ripping at him. So same lions. Here's a man being spared because God shut the mouths of the lions. God is sovereign and in control over all of his creation and all of his creatures. Next question we should ask ourselves is, are we in the place where God wants us to be? He said he would provide for Elijah there. That's the place he wanted Elijah. And you could take this and say, am I in locale that God wants me to be? But I think the real issue for all of us is, are we where God wants us to be in our heart? If we're where God wants us to be in our heart and we're content with God, he will provide for us. And sometimes those provisions are situations he puts us in. And we don't look at them as provisions, but he's changing us. He's, He's taking us and changing us to be more like himself. And in that process, he provides sandpaper for us to be smoothed out and sometimes that's uh, from work related places sometimes it's people you encounter that just we say the expression rub you the wrong way well sometimes God uses that because it's a provision of God to shape you and conform you more and more to the image of God sometimes it's health issues it's, it's shaping you, conforming you to the image of God. <clears throat> Another um, thing we can really take from this, um, don't be anxious for tomorrow. See, Elijah wasn't anxious. He was just content with God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, this is, uh, comes from there. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll provide all these other things. The things you need, he'll provide. He says each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. So, we all experience these things of worry sometimes about different things. But we need to remember just to be content with God and seek first his kingdom. 
The other thing I think I, I can draw from this is every Christian, if you're a Christian, you have experienced the, um, God's provision for you. God himself provided the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As we live our lives, we often have to be brought back to that very point that everything pertaining to life and godliness, he's provided for us in Christ. And we also need to be reminded that he's provided for us materially already. Paul says there in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, what do you have that you haven't received? He's already provided for us more than we, more than we need. <clears throat> and sometimes when we get anxious, it's been helpful to me just to recall the times God, it's been tight, maybe it's been tight financially or something's going on and you're just really stressed. <clears throat> God's provided, God's shown a way in those situations, and he's promised to provide in the future, so I can trust him today. just need to rest in him and seek him. So the lesson from Cherith is God's provision, and then that brings us to the second lesson, and this is the lesson from Mount Carmel in chapter 18. <clears throat> so I want to just read one verse, and then I'm going to, I don't, we don't have time to read all three of these chapters. And I'm just taking it the surface, just some points that I wanted to bring out. But I want to read verse 1. Now it happened after many days that the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So now he's at Zarephath, and the Lord speaks to him again and says, now you need to go show yourself to Ahab, tell him I'm going to send rain. So he goes off to do that. Well, in the meantime, Ahab calls Obadiah in and says to Obadiah, we need to go see if there's water anywhere because we need to take care of the livestock before they die. So Uh, Ahab commands Obadiah to go look for water. Well, it happens that their paths meet. And um, Elijah uh, meets Obadiah, and he tells Obadiah, I want you to go and tell Ahab to come back here, and I'll meet him here. And um, so Obadiah is very reluctant to do this because Jezebel, Ahab's wife, has already killed a bunch of the prophets of God. And Obadiah had hid about a hundred of them in caves. And he's afraid that if he tells Ahab that and comes back, Elijah's not going to be there. The Spirit of the Lord's going to move Elijah. And then he said, my head's on the line, basically. My paraphrase. But, <clears throat> so he's reluctant, but... It, Elijah uh, reminds him that he will be, he will be there. (coughs) So, he does go, and um, he um, (coughs) tells Ahab that, and then (coughs) Ahab returns. 
to that place. I'm very dry, sorry. <clears throat> I want to pick this up in verse um, 17. <clears throat> when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? But you and <clears throat> you, this troubler of Israel, but you and your father's, oh, wait, I missed it. You troubler of Israel, but he said, that's Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashereth, and eat at Je- that who eat at Jezebel's table. <clears throat> so uh, he does that, and then Jeremiah, or, uh, Jeremiah Elijah issues a challenge here. And in verse twenty, he says, "So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel, and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said." How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. So you've got this challenge that Elijah makes to the people, saying, if God is God, then follow him. If not, go ahead and follow Baal. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So there's this picture here of a contrast between one versus the many here. Now let them give us two oxen, and this is the challenge to the false prophets of Baal. Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put fire under it. Oh, I misread that other one. Uh, Neither one of them are supposed to put fire under it. Uh, then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, this is a good idea. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Elijah tells the false prophets to go ahead and start. They go first. So they put all their sacrifice in the wood on the altar, and they begin their praying. And verse, the next five verses just goes in and describes some of the ritual that they go through. They um, crying out with loud prayers for half a day until midday. They're dancing, dancing around the altar, trying to get Baal to respond, trying to get Baal to answer. Finally, at midday, Elisha says to him. <clears throat> He mocks him. He says, well, maybe your God is sleeping. Cry louder. Uh, maybe he's, he's distracted. 
just gives a list of things that maybe your God is not able to come to your aid. And um, so then they intensify this ritual and they start dancing and cutting themselves and wailing and um, till evening. But then this last verse in 29 is so good. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. That was the response from the false god. No voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So now it's Elijah's term. So he rebuilds an altar, and he builds it with stones, it says. And he puts the, the, the wood on the altar. He puts the sacrifice on the altar. And then he does something unusual. He digs a trench around the altar. <clears throat> and then he calls for pitchers of water. And he douses the sacrifice. And he does it a second time. Douses the sacrifice. Does it a third time until the sacrifice is so saturated and there's so much water filling the pit. It was full, the trench around the altar. And then Elijah prays. He wants to make sure there's no room for anything other than God to get the glory on this. So he prays. And so let's look at his prayer contrast his prayer with what was going on with these false prophets. This is in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known to you, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So, what can we gather here? Well, three things that stood out to me. God answered Elijah's prayer, manifesting his power, bringing fire down onto the altar, primarily for his glory. He brought, he answered in power, primarily for his glory, that he would receive the glory. And that's what you see in his prayer. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that the people may know that you 
are the Lord our God. <clears throat> Second thing, his power is manifest to men to bring them to repentance and faith in him. He says that they may know that you brought the turn their heart, brought them back. So God will manifest his power on hearts to bring people to repentance. And then thirdly, his power is manifest here to bring judgment. You see, he judges the false prophets, and they're slain there uh, at Mount Carmel. So three things that we can take from that. And um, application for us, I just have really just two applications. <clears throat> One... If you are a Christian, you need to realize you have already experienced a measure of God's power in your life. Um, Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the fact that a person believes the gospel, the power of God is working in them to believe. It's a wonderful thing. <clears throat> we tend to think of power as something like we uh, there on Mount Carmel, but power of God works in hearts. He changes men inside. It's wonderful. What was the result of the power of God changing you? I would venture to say one of the primary results was you praised God. <laughs> you brought glory to God, just like, just like he did here. God was glorified. God's glorified when a person is saved. And that person glorifies God with their mouth, with their life. They want to live for God. It brings honor and glory to God. Another thing, the power of God has broken the power of sin in your life. That doesn't mean you don't sin, but it's not the same as before you were a Christian. You were controlled by those lusts and those impulses. God's broken that power. Now, there's, we're not delivered from the presence of sin. There's sin all around us. We still commit sin, but the power of it has been broken. <clears throat> and then just think of this. I was thinking of this about myself. Over the years, the di various deliverances God's brought in your life, maybe it's addictions, maybe it's anger, whatever it is, God's doing that. He's because, like I said earlier, he's changing us to be more like Jesus. And that's done by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Second point, as Christians, we still need to experience more of that power. We still have areas of our life, besetting sins, if you will, that we need deliverance from. And God has promised he'll do that for us. We also need to have our thinking changed, renewed in our minds, and God's promised he's going to do that so that your thinking will be conformed to
to Christ's thinking. You'll be like Christ. <clears throat> and then we need, all of us need this in our lives. We need to see the power of God work in the lives of our loved ones. Family members that are just lost and they don't know it. We need the power of God to work in them. And it's a glorious thing when you see someone who's lost get converted by the power of God. So <clears throat> the lesson from Carmel, the power of God manifest. <clears throat> Third point, last point, is going to be the lesson from the cave. <clears throat> and this is in chapter 19. <clears throat> now, I want to read the first four verses of 19. <clears throat> now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'll stop there. <clears throat> so, Elijah's condition. He just, just a few days earlier, had this tremendous, victorious day where the Lord answered powerfully. Uh, fire came down from heaven. The false prophets were, were slain. And now he receives a threat from Jezebel that he's going to, she's going to take his life, and he's afraid. Now, need to realize that Jezebel, it wasn't an idle threat. Jezebel had already killed quite a number of prophets of God. And uh, some of the others, like I said earlier, Obadiah hid. But it was a real threat. It was a real distinct possibility that he was going to lose his life. And he was afraid, and he fled. <clears throat> Vance Havner says, the big day is often followed by the bad day. <laughs> and that's what the case here. I mean, it was, it was fearful. And um, <clears throat> he's despairing even of his life. And he feels very much alone, like he's the only one. And that comes out, we'll read a little more in this chapter, but it comes out, verses 9 and 10. He feels alone. So <clears throat> that's his condition. An angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him to, again, provision from God. An angel of the Lord comes, gives him some 
food and water and he eats it and then comes again and gives him more and says, now go up to Mount Horeb. <coughs> so he does. And he stays in a cave up there on the mountain. And then in verse 9, the Lord comes and he says something to him. So let's pick it up in verse 9. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So, That's where we get alone. I alone am left. He's feeling that. Then the Lord tells him in verse 11 to go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. Now, he passes by in three forms, manifests himself in three ways here, and then in a fourth way. One is the wind, very strong wind. He's in this cave, and this strong wind is blowing, big enough, strong enough to knock pretty good-sized rocks off of the mountain. That would be pretty frightening. You know, we had some strong winds here last week. It blew off one of our um, vent turbines, but thankfully we had a couple brothers take care of that. But nonetheless, it can be a frightening thing when there's a lot of wind. You've seen things of storms. Then there's an earthquake. The mountain he's on, I'm sure, was quaking, shaking. That's fearful. In each one of these, it says God wasn't in it. It doesn't mean God didn't cause it, but he wasn't in it to speak to him there. Then this fire, out of nowhere, this fire comes. And it says God's not in the fire. And then the fourth way, a gentle blowing breeze, and he knew God's presence. Let's find it here. Um, After the quake, a fire, this verse 12, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, verse 13, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Remember, that's just what he said back up in 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10. And then Elijah, then he, <clears throat> then he said, same thing he said in verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he repeats again what he had said up in verses 9 and 10. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a rebuke to Elijah, and I think what we could say is, Why are you in this state, Elijah? I'm with you. Why are you in this place? 
And then he tells him that he's supposed to go and anoint these some kings and he's to anoint Elisha to be his replacement. (coughs) So he does that. And then he also reminds Elijah, you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So just because you feel like you're the only one, you're not. The reality is you're not. And the reality is he wasn't alone on the mountain with uh, false prophets. God was with him. And if God's with you, you're not alone. So, lessons from this little encounter of the cave. When there is turmoil without, there was turmoil without, uh, Jezebel was going to kill him, and turmoil within, sense of being fearful and alone, despairing, God often speaks in a gentle quietness to our hearts. That's the primary way God will speak to you is just in your heart. He speaks that way. Now, he does speak in other ways. But primarily, when we're feeling that turmoil within and without, God speaks to us. Sometimes we can feel like Elijah, and we can't go on like we can't go on. Lord, I can't go on in this. I can't go on this way. You feel that way. But I thought this was really encouraging to me. But as with Elijah, God's not finished yet. He still has work for you to do. He wasn't going to take his life. He still had a a job for him to do. He had to go anoint Elisha. He had to go and anoint these other kings. So he wasn't finished with him. And sometimes we can feel very despairing and like, what's the use? And nothing's really accomplished in my life. Wrong. If you're here and you're a Christian, God's got some tasks for you to do. He's not finished with you. When he's finished with you, he'll take you. But he's not finished with you yet. So when we think... Oh, the other thing I would say about this is, you know, this feeling that Elisha feels alone, this feeling, it sure lines up with what James says about Elijah having passions of the same nature as we are. He's a man. He has these same feelings that we would have and we have had. So the other thing is, the other point I brought up earlier When we think we're the only ones walking in truth and obedience, God's got his 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to the gods of this world. And we ought to be thankful for that. And we can pray that God would keep his people from going the way of the world. It's a a command to us, or at least an exhortation to pray for those 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee. And then the last point I wanted to make is we long, often long for these caramel type of experiences 
of God's Spirit being poured out mightily. However, even when it appears nothing is going on, God is quietly working in the hearts of his people. Nothing spectacular or sensational necessarily from the world's vantage point for sure, but true and lasting work of grace. And I I really wanted to to read this quote from Vance Avner because it was so good. We are in great danger of going from one caramel to another, living on excitement, mass meetings, and amazing demonstrations that we need a session in the cave. Let us not deafen our ears to the quiet moving of God's spirit in hundreds of humble hearts whose work of faith and labor of love will outlast anything on Carmel. Just the the working of the spirit and the life of the believer is uh, ongoing. It lasts. So then, in conclusion... We need to remember that where God guides, he provides. If you're where God wants you to be, he has promised he will provide for you. Seek first his kingdom. That's where he wants you to be. That's what he wants you to be doing. And he will provide. Second point that we had. As Christians, we have experienced a measure of God's power in our lives, but we still need more of that power to be manifest in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones. And then thirdly, when we feel alone and despairing, remember God is not finished with you yet. He still has things for you to do, and he will strengthen you for the task. He has always kept his faithful ones, and he will continue. Well, may the Lord help us as we go into another year to just remember those things that God is promised to provide, that his power has been shown to us and will be continued because of his promise that he's going to continue the work. And that we can really trust him for what's left in our life. Whatever portion of how many years we have. God's not finished with us yet. Lord, use me however you want. And uh, know his presence in our lives just through that whispering of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Quiet whisper of God. And obey it when, when it comes. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful for uh, your word. We thank you for the promises of your word. Thankful for these lessons in Elijah's life. And we just confess, Lord, we need to uh, remember some of these things, Lord, of you promising promises to us and things you've already done for us and how we can hide ourselves in you and Just pray that you would be with us as we begin a new year to just really honor you with our lives, with our thoughts, with our conversation. 
pray in Christ's name. Amen.